We are really in beginning chapter 7, but for context, we need to go back to 6.16. So go ahead and go there if you will, please. If I can title this, again, it would be, Why Sorry Isn't Enough. We'll read from there, God willing, through the entirety of chapter 7. By the way, happy Guy Fox Day. Um, we actually, yeah, I don't know, can we say it that way? It's, you know, what a great fellowship. Who, I mean, where else could we have, like, several people from France coming on, like, Guy Fox Day, fellowshipping with the British? It's just beautiful. I just love it. Um, it just shows whoever's in Christ is a new creation. It just doesn't matter. All right. <clears throat> 616. Nobody knows who is who here. That's good. It says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what's unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when I came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. Some of you know how that feels. But we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of this world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you for what you're going to do tonight. Thank you for the blessing of being able to sit with you, love on you. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to know you are going to minister, and so we commit ourselves to you, open our hearts, and say, Lord, have your work in each of us. Do your work, Lord, we pray. Please, Lord, 
Lord, I surrender myself to you. Lord, immerse me in your spirit that you would be seen. Come upon me that you would use me as your tool, Lord, to accomplish your therapy, your comfort, your work tonight. So, Lord, open our hearts and minds to what it is you wish to do tonight as we commit ourselves to you. Jesus, in your name. Amen. Would say tonight as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. Now, it almost seems like, I mean, have you ever been in a situation where someone's talking? This happens to my daughter all the time. She talks to someone and they have in, she has inside jokes with everyone. Never, she has inside jokes with herself. And you're always kind of like, I feel kind of out of the loop and I just smile and nod and look dumb and awkward. Well, if you're not kind of familiar with the situation that revolves around this, you could kind of smile and nod and feel like you're kind of outside the inside of this. Well, I don't want you to be. So here's the way it works. If you're in your Bible, flip to 1 Corinthians for a moment. Chapter 5. Chapter 5, Paul, and see, you know, here's sort of the original context. Again, please don't just believe me. Search the scriptures. This is the way it works. Paul on his second missionary trip had planted a church in Corinth. That is, by the way, Greece today, more the western side, west of Athens. It was known for its uh, debauchery. It was known for, I mean, if to be, matter of fact, Homer would use the term Corinthian. And when he spoke about a Corinthian, what he was saying was, you are a person without morals or scruples. So to be called that would be an insult unless you were kind of a sleazy person. But Paul goes there and, he, and he, he's there for over a year. He's planning a church. He's sharing Jesus with these people and many respond. Matter of fact, the Lord even appears to him there and says, don't worry, Paul, literally stop worrying. The idea is Paul obviously was, because God doesn't tell you to stop something if you're not doing it. He says, I have many in this town. Don't worry about it. I'm, I've got you covered. And Paul will stay there and he will preach the gospel and he'll build and he'll disciple and he'll basically plant a church. By his third missionary trip, it's been roughly five years now. It's roughly 50-something A.D. And, and as it is the case, he gets this letter from Stephanus, Partenatus, and Achaicus, three of the guys from the church there. And the letter really is, in essence, kind of a, well, it's a rough letter to read. And the reason is, is that the church is a mess. It had turned into a three-ring circus. In one ring of the circus, people were divided over who they got their identity from. Peter, Paul. They were known more for their outer appearances and their outer allegiances than, to be honest, for Jesus. In the second ring, there was this issue of sexual tolerance. In the third ring, there would be the issue of Christians suing each other. Now, I don't know if you know this, but scripturally, we have no scriptural basis Pursuing each other as Christians. Because the idea is asking a worldly court to solve Christians' differences. Paul's appraisal, you are carnal. You are acting like mere unbelievers. Chapters 7 through the rest of the, of the letter of 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul is writing in response to this one, are, in essence, questions asked for Pastor Paul. What about marriage? Chapter 7. What about meat given to idols? Chapter 8. What about giving? Chapter 9. Chapter 10. What about men and women in the, in the service? And you realize with each one of these things, you know, you start seeing this, you know, the, the propriety of men and women. You start seeing spiritual gifts and how they're exercised, how Paul cloaks the whole thing and tells us the whole thing is covered in love. Chapter 14. How do we practice those spiritual gifts? That's kind of the way it works. And so every one of those things, he's sort of addressing problems. But in it, Understand, Paul has to actually come down on them and say, you guys need to stop acting and stop looking like and stop trying to blend in with the world. But of the harshest statements he makes is in chapter 5, because that's where he's addressing this issue. And understand, the sin, first and foremost, is not that somebody was committing a, a sexual sin, though that is clearly a problem. The issue was that the church was applauding their sexual looseness because they were in a society where everybody was sexually loose. In other words, they were applauding their tolerance. Well, let me make it clear to you. Scripturally, God calls us to tolerate each other's personalities 
And he calls us to be intolerant of sin. That we love, encourage each other enough that we want to see us all step out of it. My prayer for every one of you and myself is that we would feel comfortable, anyone would feel comfortable coming into the church, just not in their sin. And unfortunately, the church gets it backwards. We will sue each other, which shows that we will not tolerate each other's personalities and problems, but we will tolerate people's sin because that makes us feel free to do it ourselves. In chapter 5, look at how it's written, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as not even named among the Gentiles. In other words, you guys are sleazier than the unsaved world around you in a place that's known for being sleazy. How hard do you have to work to be that sleazy? And it says that a man has his father's wife. Some would say that's stepmom. We don't, all we know is it's dad's wife. Could be mom, could be stepmom. Either way, it's wrong. And here's the thing. Paul says in verse 2, And you're puffed up. You have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Which one of you wants to be able to live out this verse? Many of you think, me, please. Well, if you do, let me know, because probably you should be the one not doing it. The simple of it is, is this guy is living such a unrepentant, gross life against the, the standards of God. And the church is proud of the fact they're tolerating it. That Paul then says, if this is what he wants to do, try to get all of the world and all of God at the same time, you can't, there's not room for both. Let him go out there and just get all he wants of it. And when he's done with all of that, welcome him back. The purpose of this was not to destroy the guy, but it was rather twofold. The purpose, first of all, was to make sure that the church was safe. And second of all, to see this person honestly repent. Now understand, he doesn't talk about a person who is struggling. He doesn't talk about a person who is an unbeliever. The difference is quite simple. A person is struggling is a person who's willing to admit with you it's wrong. Such a person we should come along and help. It's the person that's doing stuff opposite of Scripture, but then saying it doesn't matter, it's cool anyways. It's not really wrong. That's the individual where Paul will say, don't even eat with this kind of person. Don't even hang out with them. Because that kind of person's a dangerous person. Now, which one of you wants to read a letter like that and realize it's your job to do it? So they did it. But because they did that, because it was, and let's face it, that kind of thing would appear very harsh. Some would say it's very unloving, though it's not. Some would say it's very judgmental. How dare you? Who do you think you are? Who does Paul think he is? And that becomes the problem. The moment you start exercising discipline of such sorts, inevitably there's a group that's going to rise up against it. And all of a sudden you have the IHatePaul.com website group that jumped up and said, who does this guy think he is? The guy who planted the church, the guy who's given his life over to serve these people, the guy who was out planting other churches. Now, we don't even know if this guy's saved. And the, the, the basis they use is they use this basis on the whole name it, claim it thing, the prosperity doctrine. If God really blesses people with prosperity, well, then this guy, how do we even know this guy's saved? He's sick. He's poor. He's running for his life. How could that guy even be a Christian? And if you really think that God's best for you is just being healthy, wealthy, and wise, you are two-thirds completely wrong. Because if God, what God is best to give you is money or physical health on earth, well, then God's a temporary God. But unfortunately, that's, or I should say fortunately, it's not the way it works. I feel like we're in World War II. We're hiding out here, you know what I'm saying? And the bombs, don't worry, the Lord's going to protect the church, everyone. Don't worry, we're in a safe place. The good news is it's not the end of the story. And praise God, we have a second Corinthians. 
Because what happened ultimately is someone had to say, hey, listen, Holmes, however they're going to say it, but if you came from mind block, yo, Holmes, if that's the way you want to play it and you don't want to call this wrong, well, go out there and do it all you want. And when you're sick of it, the door is open for you to come back. But let's face it, in a community like this, you know what a person would do? They'd just go to the next church. They wouldn't even have to walk a mile to do so. Let's be honest. In those days, there really wasn't another church. It wasn't like there was the first church of Corinth and the second church of Corinth and the third church. You've heard the story about the guy that was shipwrecked on the island and they finally went and rescued him and they found three buildings. And they asked, well, what's the first building? He goes, that's my house. And they go, well, that's really nice. Well, what's the second building? He goes, that's my church. And they go, oh, sweet. Well, what's the third building? He goes, well, that's the church I used to go to. You know, that's kind of the idea. Well, anyways, sorry. But in a case like this, you're going to be known as, I mean, you're going to be called all those things. But do you realize God has done the same? When the nation Israel played with idols, you know what God did? Is he sent them to Babylon. You'd say, well, isn't that the craziest place to send them? That's idol capital. That was so that they had so much of it, they realized how empty it is. You know what's interesting is when God brought them back, we never again read of another idol. Isn't that interesting? Do you know what they have now as a problem, according to Scripture? Exalting a man. Well, God's going to give them that at the end, too. And us, too, by the way. Well, good news is we get box seats for that one. And in the end of it all, again, we'll go, oh, that's not it. That's not it either. Should definitely realize God and God alone is to be worshipped. So with that in mind, flip then to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now Paul has a split church in Corinth. He has those that are really trying to risk it, trying to obey the hard stuff, and another group that's just an anti-Paul group. Verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 2. If anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, but not too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority, notice he doesn't say unanimously, is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather now to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. What it tells us here is that the man repented and came back. It worked. That the guy got what he wanted, and then he finally realized how stupid. Like the prodigal son, he came to his senses and said, even the servants in my father's house have it better than this. So let's say you've done one of those situations where, you know, and sometimes you just do it for your own preservation, let's be honest. You're like, you know what, we just can't hang out. You're dragging me down. I'm not saying that because I'm trying to judge you. I'm trying to say I'm judging it. Your behavior, the it, is the problem, not you. You're just siding with it instead of siding with the Lord. We can't hang, man. You're, gonna, you're killing me. Well, this guy finally repented and he came back. And here's Paul's advice, God's advice, and it's threefold. You've got to make the first move. Man, when a person really does come to They've been living, more than likely, they've been living a lie of a life, trying to tell everyone they're cool when they know they're not or they're trying to not believe they're not. And somewhere down the line, the last place they want to go is back to the group of people because they are convinced that someone, if not a majority, are going to say, I told you so. Which, by the way, nobody normally ever does, but the enemy is really good at convincing us of those moments. And this is what it says. Here are those three things again, according to this. Verse 7, so that on the contrary, you ought to rather, first of all, to forgive. Literally, the word means to cast off and desert. We're not going to talk about this anymore. Can we agree it's wrong? If we agree it's wrong, let's toss it off and let's not make it a topic of discussion anymore. If you're willing to leave it, I'm willing to leave it too. Second, comfort him. Paracalejo, come beside the individual. So what happens is a person like that might come and they'll sit in the farthest pew back by themselves waiting to see who looks at them what way. And even if people are looking at the toilet, they'll think they're giving them a strange look. It's like, go over there and go next to them. Sit next to them and let them know they're still loved. So comfort them and then reaffirm your love to them. 
Let them know, hey, I still love you. Welcome home. Like the father with the robe and the ring and the fatted calf. That's the idea, beloved. So the guy repented and he came back and now he's back in the church. But the problem is there's still division in the church. Because there are those that kind of look now and say, see, it really worked. But there are those that go, we still hate Paul. Once that momentum starts, it's pretty hard to stop. It's amazing. It doesn't take but one person to start the I hate the pastor dot com kind of thing. And it all just goes, it goes viral. They don't even have to have a reason. Oh, they'll have something, but it doesn't, you know, it never has to be legitimate. You've probably heard it said that a lie will travel around the world while the truth is getting its boots on. So by the time we get to this part of the letter, Paul has actually been addressing this. It tells us, by the way, because Paul knew that when he had sent that first letter, it was going to cause some trouble, and he started catching a wind of that trouble. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, look at that with me. It says, furthermore, when we came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I didn't find Titus my brother. But taking leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Now understand, <coughs> Paul had told them at the end of 1 Corinthians, he had planned to visit them, but not now. And he was going to go west to where they were, but he wound up going east instead. It just wasn't the right time to go there. So there were those that would say, well, Paul's not even a man of his word. It was one of those, I hope to do it, it's tentative, but that was enough for people to call Paul a liar. Because once you're trying to make someone a bad guy, you're going to find whatever you can, let's be honest. I don't like the way he ties his shoes. I don't, you know, whatever. You know, it's, you know you're, you're always going to find something, even if it doesn't exist. Paul is aware of the fact that the church is getting all kinds of messed up. As a result, he already knows they're carnal. And the guy's like, man, I couldn't even rest. I couldn't even rest. And he sent somebody he trusted. Someone, by the way, he knew, knew his heart, knew the heart of God, and knew the proper intent and vision of this action. I have guys like that. I trust implicitly. I would send Daniel somewhere if I was concerned, especially if I thought they'd be violent. Of course I'd send Daniel. Why would I go myself? I'm just kidding. You know, David Birch. I would send guys like this because I know they know my heart. They've seen me get choked up over you. They've watched me white knuckle pray over you guys. They know what it's like. And, and, and the point of it's this. That if, if we were somewhere else, if I were somewhere else and I was hearing there was such a problem, and I couldn't email or text or whatever, but I could send Daniel, I would definitely do and say, well, how is it going? And then if I couldn't get a hold of him, you ever have those moments where you text someone because it seems like they might be angry at you or whatever, and you text them and they don't text back right away, and you're like, oh, dang it, they really are angry at me? Or is that just me? And then with all of that said, maybe they're underground and they're going from Heathrow, you know, to like the other end of, you know, to the northeast end of, you know, of London. So they've got like 54 hours underground. So you're not going to get a hold of them. And it seems like forever, you know, that kind of thing. And you're waiting and waiting and waiting. And you finally get that text. And you're like, oh, thank you, Lord. That was the situation. Only Titus was the text. Do you have people like that? Do you have people that you can send that you know know your heart? Know your vision? Are you a Titus to them? Are you willing to be that driven for the people as to be one yourself? So by the time we get to the end of this last chapter... Paul is addressing this fact that the people at this point, he's like, open your hearts to us. We've, we've, we've not wronged him. And he said that even prior to what we see here. We've said in chapter 6, verse 11, look at that with me as we make our way to this. It says, O Corinthians, we've spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, which tells us that what these enemies of Paul were doing is saying that Paul was the ultimate restrictor. But you're restricted by your own affections. In, so now in return for the same, I speak to you as children. Would you please be open to us? And we talked about that last week. And now we see that the same thing is going to be addressed here. So he says, well, look, if you're willing to listen, then can I just say this one thing? Stop putting yourself under a yoke with unbelievers. 
Stop giving your heart away to those who don't even have the most important thing in your life as the most important thing in theirs. He says, you know why? And that's verse 16. Because you're at the temple of the living God. You don't invite riffraff in unless you want them saved. What you don't invite in are the unrepentant that serve themselves for the purpose of drawing disciples after themselves instead of the Lord. And then he starts listing off all of these promises. That he'll dwell in us, he'll walk among us, he'll be my God, we'll be his people, he'll receive us as we separate from the unclean, he'll be a father to us, we'll be sons and daughters of the Almighty Lord. Those are the promises. Let me say those again. He'll dwell with us. Walk among us. Be our God. We'll be his people. He'll receive us. Be a father to us. We'll be his children. Do you see the relationship that he's offering there? Notice he doesn't say, I'll bless you with riches. I'll give you good health. I'll make sure that whatever you do will prosper. That's not what he's saying here. First and foremost, it's like the greatest thing you could get is a relationship with me. That's what I'm calling you out on. Therefore, chapter 7, verse 1, which really, in essence, is the conclusion of the previous chapter. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirits perfecting holiness in the fear of God. See, now, understand, back in chapter 2, when he started talking about all of this, when he talked about not having this rest, the whole thing has been, in essence, developing all of that, and he's kind of concluding that now through chapter 7 and 8. So he says again in verse 2, open your hearts to us. We've wronged no one. We've cheated no one. We've corrupted no one. Which tells me, by the way, he knows those very things that could close a heart. And what are they? They're wronging someone, corrupting someone, cheating someone. He goes, I understand if we had done those things, I understand why your heart would be closed to us. But we've done none of those. We've done the hard thing of having to confront you. Do you realize the act of love it is in a culture where we don't like to talk about anything uncomfortable that having to confront someone? Because look at, great is my boldness toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf, which tells me the other thing that seems to be the case. And that there are those that are saying that well, all that Paul is doing is, is complaining about the Corinthians. And let's face it, that would be a very natural thing to do at a moment like this. But when you read 1 Corinthians, you don't read Paul complaining. He's being a doctor, he's diagnosing, but he is not complaining. But he says, rather, great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. Comfort in the tribulations. Tribulations which he'll tell us here that he actually, well that even resented or regretted, I should say, having sent the letter at first. But he says, nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Do you know what really made the difference? Daniel showed back up and gave me the report on you guys. And what he said is, you know, they took you seriously. This guy actually was dealt with. He did repent. They're now restoring him. What a beautiful thing. He's like, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. And can I tell you, here's the best thing. He says in all of this that he comforted me more, even more so. Paul didn't wait for Titus to get any comfort. He was getting comfort from the Lord. Titus was just a guy who brought more comfort. And Titus was a guy who was known for comforting. And the news that he was bringing about the church was actually another tool for comfort. Does that make sense? Do you know people that seems like all they do is get bad news and they can't wait to share it with you? It's like I read another article and you go, oh, here we go. Did you hear about the rape victim or the murder and all that kid and what he did to that teacher? and all? It's like, wow, can you tell me something good? No, I don't know anything good, but let me tell you. I'm like, no, I don't want anything. And sometimes it's people you love so much that you feel like you're going to be like, wow, what's wrong with him? It tells us, by the way, a bad report can dry up the bones and even make your heart sick. It tells us anxiety in the heart. I'm not anxiety. I'm not sure what that is. But anxiety in the heart causes depression. One of the easiest ways to feed anxiety is to constantly fill it with bad reports. And let's face it. If you live on the news, it's pretty likely you're going to spend your life in anxiety, in which you will spend your life then totally wigged out. 
Especially if you're more familiar with the news than you are with the good news. And it seems so distant because, well, that was written long ago. This just came out this morning. Wow, did someone get you know, raped, beaten, or killed? No, I'm not trying to take lightly the people who have been injured. But if we spend more time on people we'll never meet than we are in the one person we claim to have the closest relationship with, we are going to be a mess. But the fundamental point of this whole chapter really, in essence, starts in verse 8. Hey, though I made you sorry, I don't regret it, but I did. I regretted it for the moment because I knew it was going to grieve you. I perceived that the same epistle, remember epistle is just a letter, that made you sorry, but for a little while. Look, I don't want to make you sorry. That's not my point. My point is not to fill you with sorrow. Because the issue is not sorrow. It's what kind. And he tells us in verse 10, there are two kinds of sorrow. And that is why sorry isn't enough. Hey, you do something wrong and you get caught, you're bound to be sorry for it. You're in a really uncomfortable situation. People are angry at you. They've lost respect for you. How could you not be sorry for that? Even if you don't have much of a conscience, you'll still feel bad about it. But he tells us that there are two different kinds of sorrow. There is a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow produces repentance. Worldly sorrow produces death. It tells us that godly sorrow will lead to salvation. Worldly sorrow, again, will lead to death. Godly sorrow will ultimately not be regretted. Worldly sorrow will be regretted. And I've got to be honest with you, before we develop this here, I've got to be honest with you. My natural inclination is to want to be a pain reliever. When I'm actually called to be a sorrow shifter. I look at a person and I see them in pain. I see them in sorrow. And my first thing is to want to issue immediate comfort. The problem is, I can actually produce a type of comfort, as can you, that can kill an individual. Sometimes and often, pain is a... Well, it's it's a buoy bell. It's, It's a warning sign that something is wrong. And if we actually ignore the pain, we may actually be ignoring a problem that could get worse. For which we could die from in many cases. I have friends that have died from leukemia who had many signs for several years, but ignored them. And ultimately... By the time that they could no longer ignore it, it was too late to treat. And what happens as a result of that? If we are those people, and God allows pain in our lives, sorrow in our lives, you go, hmm, something must not be right. We can either go to the good physician or get addicted to painkillers. Think that through. And there are an unlimited amount of worldly painkillers out there. I just don't want to feel the pain anymore. So I have whatever the world's morphine is of the day. It's the next relationship. It's the next addiction. It's the next ambition. But in all of it, we will regret it in the end. I don't like to bring discomfort but it's temporary. You're t- I don't know if you've heard about how to cook a frog. Have you ever heard of that? How you put them in a cool pot of water because they won't jump out? Because they're cold-blooded, as you turn the heat up, the, their body adjusts as the water heats until it gets too hot for them to jump out, and you cook the frog. And often a lot of people, and myself, we could be like that. We put ourselves in a situation we don't realize we're in the cooking pot 
because it doesn't seem uncomfortable for the moment. But as it starts to get uncomfortable, we start to just go, well, it's cool. It's cool. You know, it isn't what it seems like. I know it's kind of questionable. But in the end of it all, we have to be willing to address the cause of the pain. And that becomes the problem here. Last night, I was upstairs and my beautiful 11-year-old girl rounded a corner and she has this one foot that tends to turn in and she took the corner a little hard and all I heard, and my, I don't know how it is, this 11-year-old girl sounded like she dropped a piano on the floor. It was like, boom, 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 boom. The last time I heard noise like that, my older daughter fell down the stairs. So there I was, off the bed, down the stairs I went, and there she was sitting there crying. And my, my 11-year-old doesn't cry often. It takes a lot to make her cry. Now, obviously, at that moment, she's like, don't touch my foot, don't touch my foot, don't touch my foot, don't touch my foot. Now, if you know her mom, she was convinced that it was broken and she was probably inches away from amputation. But, so we picked her up, scooped her up, and put her on the couch. Well, I scooped her up. Mom watched. And as I scooped her and put her on the couch, I said, now put both of your feet up on the arms of the couch so this thing can sit up so it doesn't swell too much and just put your head down for a second. I want you to know in about five minutes, ten minutes, I'm going to be checking your foot. So you're going to be aware of that. See, without checking her foot, we wouldn't know if anything was wrong. She would still have pain. And as far as 11-year-old is concerned, she doesn't really care if it's broken or not. She just doesn't want to feel pain. The good news is we have our devotions at night where, you know, the Bible's read to each of our daughters and my wife. So we had our devotion time. We prayed for her and said, all right, Lord, do what you want with her foot. Then I looked at her and said, well, it's time for me to check your foot. I got up and I, you know, gently grabbed her ankle. I felt around her ankle. I felt around, you know, the the tendons that sort of surround it. And then I followed my foot down or my hands down her feet and she just started to laugh. Of course, it was tickling her. It tickled her so much she got up and stood up. God had taken care of it. She was fine. But without checking the foot, I would have had less confidence. And pain is an indicator something is wrong. And the Lord will allow sorrow in our lives. The issue isn't whether you're going to get sorrow. Let me just let you know, you're going to get sorrow. The real question is, what do you do with it? And there is a list of things he tells us here that this particular godly sorrow produced. But let me show you an example of worldly sorrow. Matthew chapter 27. Can you flip there? In chapter 27 of Matthew, verse 3, Judas has become aware that this is going to be more than the religious leaders trying to teach Jesus a lesson, slapping his wrist. It tells us in verse 3, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned, by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Which tells us the religious leader said, so what? When he said, that guy's innocent, they said, so what? Even they would admit he was innocent. Then he, that's Judas Iscariot, threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Here's a couple questions. Did Judas feel remorse? It says it right in here. Was remorseful. Did Judas repent at all? Did he? He repented of the money. He threw it back. There was nothing he could do to stop Jesus from being murdered. Can we agree? It wasn't like, well, I mean, Jesus could have thrown himself in it, but clearly it had already been prophesied. It wasn't, he wasn't going to stop it. The issue isn't just feeling sorry. The issue isn't just changing a behavior. What do you do with the guilt? 
See, the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow isn't the sorrow, it's what you do with it. What Judas did was he took the sorrow into his own hands. And that is how to have a worldly sorrow. I remind you, the mindset of the world is, it's all about you. So you know what happens? You start feeling sorry, and the next step is you start feeling sorry for yourself. We move from sorrow to sorry for me. And we take the sorrow upon ourselves. Now, again, I'm not devaluing the sorrow. I'm challenging you on what you do with it. Someone you love is not living the way you want them to. You will feel sorrow. I'm not just talking about committing a sin, am I? Not at least you yourself. Loving people will create sorrow. Aren't we aware of that, right? I mean, hating people will too, but that's another story. <clears throat> and you want to see people you love tighten Christ. Grow in Christ. You want to see them prosper. And no matter what you do, it seems like they just don't get it. They look you straight in the face and go, "Uh uh-huh, but there's no uh uh-huh in their heart. At least that we can tell. And we grieve over this. What do we do with that sorrow? Do we take it upon ourselves? Or do we hand it over to Jesus? Because that is going to be the difference. In this case, by the way, look at this with me. It tells us in verse 11, observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. And this is what it produced. Diligence, a clearing of yourself, indignation, a fear of God, a vehement desire, zeal, vindication, comfort, and ultimately obedience. Let me say that list again. It produced diligence, a clearing of yourself, an indignation, a fear of God, a vehement desire, zeal, vindication, comfort, and obedience. That's what it produced. Let me tell you the other side of things. Instead of producing diligence, when we start realizing we have something we need to hand to God, When we take it upon ourselves, instead of becoming diligent, we become listless. We become depressed. We don't want to do anything. Because now this burden, this guilt, this shame, this regret has become a burden upon us. And now it's like we're underwater. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Well, we don't want to get out of bed. We don't want to talk to anyone. Oh, we don't want to go to church. Because people will see it. We can't go to places where we tell people we're normally awesome because we're not awesome. We're miserable. Instead of a clearing of ourself, we start focusing on ourselves. We start thinking, if only I had, if only I hadn't, because there's something more I could have said. You're loving a child and you're like, if only I'd raised them different. If there was only that moment, and you know there's no shortage of ammunition you can shoot yourself with, no matter who it is. But let me remind you, God's still in control. And if you don't recognize that, you'll never sleep. Where a godly sorrow produces indignation. Do you know what that means? Indignation means you dishonor a dishonorable thing. It's disgusting to you now. Instead, you become self-disgusted, self-loathing. Because if, man, if I can't do it, and if I should have done it, but I didn't, and oh my goodness, then you start hating yourself. Did you notice the one thing that happens in all of the worldly sorrow is it's all about you. i got to fix it. i got to control it. And if I can't, then I hate myself. What's wrong with me? And instead of fearing God, in other words, reverencing God, we fear life. Now everything else is huge. Every problem is huge. We're like the little kid that should be in his pram and we're crying over little things. 
Instead of a vehement desire, where now we have a desire to see something change, instead now we become more and more depressed. As we become more depressed, that where with godliness there's a zeal, now instead there is this anxiety that steps in. And this anxiety is like this monster that wants to eat us. And we're like, oh man! There's no peace there. You know why there's no peace? Because the sorrow has become Godzilla. Instead of vindicating, which means I'm going to get this right, we qualify. We blame. Well, you know, if that person only, if they weren't so stupid, if that person wasn't so stubborn, they weren't so stiff-necked, or it was something that happened to me, and oh my goodness, if that had never happened to me. Well, if I had just been and we'll shift it to something. The problem is, sin never gets lifted off of you by trying to qualify it by anything else. Sin only gets lifted off of you by giving it to the one who can lift it off of you, and that's Jesus. And everything else will keep you from asking him to take it. And some people are more familiar, so familiar with that grief and that self-loathing and that self-hatred and that self-condemnation and that self, 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 whatever the word is there, that we're so comfortable in, in our discomfort and we're so used to this nastiness, this pit that we put ourselves in, that we're fearful of actually being delivered from it. Because we wouldn't know what to do with all that time that we spend pointing the finger at ourselves and others. So instead of vindicating it, getting it dealt with, we actually, and here's the most amazing thing. You ready for this? The sorrow becomes something to beat you up and you join in with the sorrow to beat you up. Does that sound like a smart idea? That's like trying to help the cancer kill you. But if we were taking our sorrow and dealing with it in a godly manner, say, God, this hurts. Please step in now. In Second Chronicles, it says, The eyes of the Lord span the earth, seeking to show himself strong those whose hearts are loyal to him. God wants to show himself strong. But if we're not going to ask him, then and when he does, we won't even recognize it. Oh God, I'm grieving and this hurts. Will you please step in now and show yourself strong? Vindicate. Please. As a result of that, these people, these Corinthians, who had a godly sorrow, received comfort. I've learned in a situation like this, the opposite of comfort is actually hopelessness. And you get to that point where like, oh, this is never going to change. That person's never going to change. The situation's always going to be hopeless. This is futile this is hopeless. This is stupid. Why am I wasting my time? Any of you ever have those moments? Because the sorrow you have has rolled on top of you instead of been laid at Christ's feet. These people sorrowed in a godly fashion. And as a result of that, they obeyed. <clears throat> How did they obey? They dealt with this guy the way they had to. But then he came back and they dealt with him to welcome him home. And that is really difficult obedience. Would you agree? So somebody is suffering. And my first thought is, oh God, help me to stop the suffering. And God says, how about instead you steer the sorrow? Because I'm using it. Okay. 
instead of just how do I make you feel better for the moment, why don't we just get some Haagen-Dazs and watch all 68 hours of Pride and Prejudice, the BBC version. Instead, how about we give this to Jesus? But it might hurt in 10 more minutes. Then we'll give it to Jesus again. And for some of us, it's like aerobics. We're doing it, and then it comes, oh, we're doing it again, and we're doing it again. And it's like, let's face it, in, if you've ever worked out, the most effective way to build muscle, to build strength, is what's called resistance training. And the Lord allows that spiritually as well. There will be opposition, and that's resistance training. The worst part's when you're your own resistance. Any of you out there really good at condemning yourself? And yet there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, so you're like, well, that's all right, I'll pick up the slack then. Is that really what we want to do? We hear, I'm such a jerk, I'm such an idiot, I'm such a... God's like, excuse me. a daughter that used to went through a whole stage of that. I finally had to pull her down and say, not pull her down, but put, pull her, put her in her place and say, listen, you are talking about my daughter that I love now. And I'm offended by that. I love that girl. How much more your heavenly father. Hey, you're talking about my child here. Stop ripping on my child. I love that child. If we don't rip on each other, we'll rip on ourselves, and God is offended by both. He's like, that's my bride. Don't you be talking about my bride that way. And I've had to do that with another child, in a sense. Actually, it's the same one. Where I've said, look, don't you talk about my wife that way. Don't you talk to my wife that way. We are going to get sorrow. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But cheer up. I've overcome the world. We go, that's such a lovely little phrase. It sounds like a cat poster. But in the end of it, it's reality. And the reason Jesus tells us, he doesn't just say, cheer up. It'll get better, slugger. He's like, look it. I've, I've already beat everything. Hand it to me. It's not too heavy for me. I'm not intimidated by your burdens. They're mine, actually. If they're heavy and ill-fitting, they're not yours. You know that. The one I've designed for you is light and well-fitting. So observe this very thing. Verse 11. What sorrow and godly... That you sorrowed in a godly matter, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation... What fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. And all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. All that showed me was that you were actually serious about this. Sorrowing properly. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did it for the sake. I didn't do it for the sake of the guy who did the wrong. Nor did I do it for the sake of the person who suffered the wrong. But rather, so they could show you that I love you that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to, you, appear to you. Therefore, now I have this comfort. Have you ever been with somebody and their grief makes you grieve? I mean, that's a pretty natural thing, to be honest, as a Christian. A supernatural thing to do. it. And you want them to be comforted so that you can receive comfort? Well, then steer the sorrow. Don't just try to kill the pain. As we steer the sorrow... We're going to the comforter together. How can I not be comforted if I'm going to the comforter myself? Therefore, we've been comforted in your comfort. And we rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus. Because Titus has given me the report. And notice it says, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. If anything, I've boasted him. Look at, I've, you think that I've complained about you guys? Look at, I've told him amazing things about you guys. And when he showed up there, you know what Titus found? Notice what it says in verse 14. Our boasting to Titus was found true. His affections are greater for you now 
It's like the guy loved you before he met you. And you know why he loved you before he met you? Because he heard so many amazing things. Listen, there are people who have come to this church and I've not made a big deal about it because I've not wanted to tell you, but I've bragged about you so much. They've come and they've known some of you before they've met you because of the things I've said about you. And then they've showed up and they've, and and I kid you not, without exception, everyone's like, you are so right. That girl is the human blanket. That guy is sort of a oompa loompa. That guy's whatever. And look at the passion in that Brazilian guy. And you're right. And that guy, the way he speaks by just going, hmm with his big eyes or whatever it is it's like it's amazing what you can see and the love you see in that girl and the, the passion and the praise you see in that Italian girl and it's there's these things you see I love bragging about you guys and what the Lord's doing in your life I love it and I love them saying you're right are we without problems of course not Lord. we're human and in the world you will have tribulation But you can hand it to the one who has conquered the world. It tells us to cast all our cares upon him. Aren't you thankful, that word all there? Don't just cast some of them. Don't just cast the ones that you really are inconsequential. It's the ones that actually... Now think about what it means to cast. And I'd like you to consider the fact that the way that God built the world included gravity. Aren't you thankful nowhere in Scripture God tells us to actually lift up our cares to God? Some of us, it wouldn't happen. Your burden, you're heavy laden, which means it's way heavy on your shoulders. And it's like, and it's like I just can barely stand at best. It is almost impossible to walk. God doesn't say, now lift all that up to me and I'll take care of it. See, the good news is God doesn't mind getting low for you. Isn't that the whole story of Jesus? It's always like, Throw it down. And I'll tell you what. After a day where I'm carrying a rucksack that usually weighs about as much as most of you in here, I'm so thankful I don't have to lift it up. There are some days, to be honest, at the end of the day, I don't even take it upstairs. Put it down on a chair and I plug in what needs to be plugged in and I just leave it there. And the Lord says, Cast down your cares. Cast them. Throw them down. Because I don't mind meeting them on the ground. I'll take care of them from there. I built this place with gravity so that you can know that it'll even work in your favor if you can throw down. His affections are greater for you. This is Titus as we close this. And as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Fear and trembling? Is that a weird thought? That they were so concerned about Paul themselves? The coolest thing about a Titus is Titus doesn't just bring comfort in a direction. Titus brings comfort everywhere. Titus couldn't wait to get to Corinth to issue comfort to the Corinthians. And then when he found out what they were like, he couldn't wait to get back to Paul to give him the comforting news. What if we became like that? By the way, does anyone know what the word Titus means? Nurse. What a cool word, actually, when you think about it. It's kind of what he is. He's a guy that comes in and issues the comfort. Therefore, the end result, I rejoice that I have confidence in you and everything. I am so glad. Man, I am comforted to the point that I just can't help but praise God for it. Here's my prayer tonight. First of all, are you, in com- are you in a position right now where you are struggling with sorrow? And you want to live off of the painkillers. Is this somehow you want to ignore it? But the problem is the whole thing keeps growing and growing and it just doesn't leave you alone. Well, tonight I'm here to tell you that you have two different choices with that sorrow. You can make that sorrow about you or you can hand that sorrow to Jesus and he is infinitely better at handling it than you will ever be. And me too, by the way. If you are in a position of sorrow tonight, where you are battling it, whatever it is, tonight, let's lay it down before the Lord and receive His comfort. If you're in a place tonight where you're like, well, you know, I'm not really sure that I'm really struggling with anything. I don't know if there's any real great sorrow in my life and I'm... Listen, let's almost get afraid that maybe I will have some now, now that I've heard this. 
well, I'd rather have this message first, wouldn't you, to, to hand it to the Lord quicker? But could we pray to become Tituses? Think about what we tell people. The problem is some of us are verbal processors. What that means is if we were walking down the street and some guy did something really heinous and gross and demonic or whatever in front of us, some of us, the way we process it is telling 100 people. And that's 100 more people that weren't there that had to experience what you experienced indirectly. Isn't that awesome? No, it's not. I would recommend instead, tell the Lord 100 times. He's the one guy who can handle it. There are times where you're like, you know what? I could really use a little bit of prayer right now. And someone will say, why? And you say, I saw something kind of funky. And they'll say, what? And you're like, I think it's better you don't know. Or you'll be calling somebody else for prayer because of what I told you. But will you help me throw it down? Whatever it is. Wouldn't that be what a Titus would do? Let me help you throw it down. And tonight, let's walk out of here with the comfort of Christ. Hey, is your past your Godzilla? Are there friends that are your Godzilla? Are there family that's your Godzilla? Is it money or people or work or society or whatever? Politics. Now read about politics and tell me how happy that makes you. You have to go to sleep at night going, God's in control, God's in control, God's in control. I trust you, Lord, I trust you. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you. On this beautiful night, you've allowed the bombs to not blow off beside us during the times where we really needed to just hear you and not be distracted. Thank you for that. Thank you that none landed in this building. Thank you that somehow in all of this we can be safe because you are a God who knows what he's doing. Jesus, we recognize that this whole thing revolves around the fact that you don't have a problem getting low to get us, to deal with us, to heal us, to cure us, to comfort us, to change us, to bring us to that place of wholeness in you. And it started with this, that we're sinners at enmity with you and then are against you and then you and your infinite love died on the cross so that all of our sins could be paid for and rose again to give us new life. Just like Scripture promised. And we've confessed you as Savior. But in confessing you as Savior, we recognize we also need to, to confess you first and foremost as Lord. And as Lord, you're our boss, you're our master. We're your servants. But you're our Father, and so we're your children. And we as a church are your bride. That's pretty wild, the relationships we get with you. Every super intimate relationship is the ones we get. Thank you for that. And with that, Lord, I just pray right now that as we actually declare your Lordship, that you have commanded us to cast our cares before you. What a wonderful command. Thank you that you've not commanded us to carry them, to sort them out, to clean ourselves up. Thank you you've not commanded that. But you've commanded for us to come to you even when we're exhausted and we're so heavy burdened and that you would give us rest. That's your promise. Thank you, Lord, that you've never been intimidated by our grief, by our sorrow, by our problems, by our sin. You've never been intimidated by any of it. And God, I just pray tonight for every person in this room that is burdened because of some sorrow, because of some grief. And I'm in no way belittling the grief, but rather magnifying the grief taker. Lord, we're fearful of making little a person's concerns, but yet the bottom line is really they've made larger. They've been magnifying the problem and in essence trying to make you smaller. 
But they can't. You're infinite. It's just how they see you. So Lord, for every person burdened right now with whatever the grief is, we lay it at your feet. And as we lay it at your feet, give us your peace. I will cast all my cares upon you. Lay all of my burdens down at your feet. And any time I don't know what to do, I will cast all my cares upon you. I will cast all my cares upon you. Lay all of my burdens down at your feet. And any time I don't know what to do, I will cast all my cares. Lord, make us the Tituses, quick to be verbal about your good news, quick to issue comfort and encouragement like a Barnabas, quick to speak words of a God who's perfect and loves us, quick to bring good news, quick to bring encouraging news, quick to bring that which strengthens the soul and bones. Lord, make us an army of Titus as we pray. And as You are Lord, we know You can do this and will. In Jesus, in Your name. Amen.